Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Sunday, October 17th. And today we are airing part two of our interview with Robin Wigglesworth. Yep. Straight from bed to Oslo. Probably the only person who could actually say that, right? I'm just trying to think who else lives in Oslo right now who used to live in bed in Brooklyn? Come on. I think that's a, that would be a big reach. Anyway, Robin Wigglesworth, the global finance correspondent of the Financial Times, has written a book called Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. We're going to start this part, the second part of the interview, with talking about Jack Bogle, who is always called like the the godfather of index funds. And, you know, he's like sort of the ultimate disruptor. I, I thought the one, one real interesting thing that Robin said that you know, I found this so often in talking to a lot of people who get involved in certain aspects. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's financial technology, or maybe it is someone like Charles Schwab, who we've had on the program. You often find that these people are are remote. You know, they they they're not Wall Street insiders. And the one thing that Robin said that during our interview, he says it's really hard for incumbents to disrupt an industry that they are certainly part of. And I think that is true. So we're going to start the second part of our conversation talking about a disruptor, Jack Bogle. You were able to spend some real quality time with Jack Bogle, right? Yeah. Well, on my phone many times before he passed away, sadly. Right. So, I mean, look, he definitely feels a little bit like a curmudgeon, and I can be that person. Can you explain, through your eyes at least, what you felt like his view was of sort of getting nudged out and then also for Vanguard to go into the managed fund business, which seems like antithetical to what he built the company around. It's a great question just because I feel Jack Bogle is is actually far more of a complex person and character than most people that might actually be very familiar with him think. He was not an indexing zealot. Uh, hmm. Certainly, like for a long time, you know, when this was just an idea, there were some uh, professors out on the West Coast that suggested the idea of an unmanaged fund. 
And he had, at the time he was a senior vice president, I think, at, at Wellington, an active fund manager. And he pseudonymously absolutely rubbished their idea. Hmm. He said this was the dumbest thing he's ever heard because active managers do, all the major active managers do better than in the long run. And even when he started an index fund, after he'd been fired by Wellington, after a, sort of a, a merger gone horrifically awry, that index fund was a pure corporate gambit. It was a, a corporate politics in essence, where mm. he wanted to somehow distance Vanguard, the company that was set up to handle the clerical work for the Wellington funds. He needed something to make that into a more independent issue. And an index fund, he claimed, was unmanaged, and therefore it didn't break its agreement with Wellington. But he didn't really care that much. It was a ploy. He didn't really fall in love with indexing until it started taking off in the 90s, really. But then he gets pushed out. Yeah, no, it was it's kind of a tragic story. Yeah. Because, you know, he, he had groomed a phenomenal successor in Jack Brennan. Jack Brennan, it was interesting, that still has not talked to me or any journalist, as far as I can gather, since basically he left about his, his falling out with, uh, with Jack Bogle. But they had a real father-son relationship. And they were the yin to each other's yang, where Bogle was a grand strategist, loved talking to the press, was this larger-than-life character, while Brennan was just the master organizer. And then when Bogle's health started to fail, he gracefully handed the reins over to Jack Brennan, who'd kind of been running the shop, the ship, as Vanguard calls it, uh, for quite a few years. But then Jack Bogle had a heart transplant, and he came back strong as an ox, and it seems kind of expecting that Brennan would hand the reins over to him. But Brennan and the board weren't that keen on that. So Bogle saw that as a betrayal by the board and, and people that he groomed to run the company. And they saw him as an inspirational founder CEO that was not the right person to take Vanguard on its next journey. I, I think, sadly, they were probably right. Like Jack Bogle was just a phenomenal human being and a titanic figure in, in the history of American business. But Vanguard today would not be where it is if Jack Brennan hadn't been there already in the last years of, of J Jack Bogle's illness and hadn't taken over the reins and then handed over to a successor of very able ears after that. But mm. the falling out was tragic and sad and, and Brennan and Bogle never spoke and never made up. I don't like that. We're going to have a happier story. Let's talk a little bit about exchange-traded funds, which is really the next iteration, I guess, of the indexing or the passive movement. The exchange-traded fund world, if you can try to boil it down for our listeners, explain a little bit about how this became something that was necessary or interesting to the folks who, who were trying to make this happen. In other words, if we're talking about passive investing, why do we care if someone can actually buy or sell something intraday? No, it's a great question. I mean, the genesis of this is still, I mean, almost a little bit up for debate. But I kind of think that the, the birth of the ETF almost came by out of desperation, a bit like Bo Vanguard, the Vanguard 500 fund that Bogle started was just a ploy in his corporate jihad against his, his former partners at Wellington. The ETF was invented by the American Stock Exchange. So the Amex had a pretty healthy derivatives business, but it was basically just losing ground. And they needed a product. 
So Nate Mogues, who was the head of product, new products there, thought, well, hey, how about we take some index funds and make them traded on an exchange? Mm. People trade them throughout the day because then, first of all, it helps distribution because, you know, this is like the Internet might become a big thing at the time. And, uh, you know, you can just buy and sell them like you would a stock through your brokerage and so on. And you know, some people can build, make different in, in, tradable index funds to build a broader portfolio. Uh, so he went to Vanguard and Jack Bogle basically, they, they hit it off personally on a personal level, but Bogle basically chucked him out. He hates hmm. the idea of tradable index funds. So the Amex had to partner with State Street and it took a long time because this was a novel product. Uh, and even though the SEC had kind of inadvertently called for something similar uh, after the, the 1987 big sort of stock market crash, a product that would sit somehow between the actual stock market and the individual stocks and equity futures and some of the programmatic trading that had turned you know, Black Monday into such a disaster. Uh, but even so, despite the SEC's tacit uh, support, it still took many years for it to come through. And frankly, it didn't take off initially either. Uh, I had a really funny conversation with a friend of mine who was um, vice chairman of a big bank. And uh, he said, these ETFs are going to be the death of us. Everyone's going to pile up. All of your people listening, everyone with their passive investing, you're all going to be on the same side of the trade. It's going to screw up the markets. And you say that the test case for that fear came to pass in March of 2020. Can you explain that? For most of us, March 2020 was obviously a very scary time because there was this global health crisis. And I think most of us are also aware that that snowballed very quickly into a global economic crisis as, you know, we had to basically have to shut down everything very, very quickly. I don't think a lot of people outside the finance industry realize or appreciate how close we came to, you know, a triple crisis, a financial crisis on top of that. Because we ambled into March 2020 with you know markets enjoying a very long post financial crisis bull run there'd been a lot of silly stuff happening not quite 0607 silliness but you know quite a lot of dangerous stuff anyway and a lot of people thought that ETFs and index funds have been warning that well in the next crisis they will be tested this will be the big stress test and i think march 2020 was a phenomenally big and abrupt and painful stress test for the passive investing ecosystem. But I broadly think that actually it came out of it with far better grades than even I would have expected before the events, at least. So the fear was that essentially everyone would be on the same side of the trade. People would bail out of their ETFs. The managers would have to then scramble to get up and it would all lead to, you know, essentially a, a run on the fund. Yeah. And it sounds to me the way you describe it is that it actually the ETF structure worked as originally intended to as like in between this world of the individual stocks. Right. And the and the consumer. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that was the genesis moment. The the SEC report, SEC Treasury report into the, the market break, as they called it, of October 1987. Uh, that it was some sort of a, it would act as a buffer product. Ahead of March 2020, I, I was always a little bit skeptical of that. Mm. In that I thought, well, you know, buffer product, it sounds cool. But I, in practice, markets move 
in weird ways, as we know. And certainly in times of stress, there are all sorts of fragilities that we'd never even suspected or thought of that always erupt. And let's just focus on bond ETFs because that's where like most of the issue or the fears typically rely because stocks trade all the time. Like Apple might drop two, three, four, five percent, ten percent in a day, but you're going to get a price for Apple stock. But like a lot of bonds, especially corporate bonds, don't actually trade that much. Like the vast majority of corporate bonds basically trade maybe once or twice a week or a month. And some, you know, a big chunk of bonds don't trade for an entire year sometimes. So people are worried that these ETFs that people have piled into, bond ETFs, and they've grown to be almost like a trillion dollars leading up to March 2020, that at some, when basically everybody wanted money, they'd just dump the ETFs. The ETFs would have to sell bonds into a market that was basically frozen, and that would cause carnage. That you'd have four selling and it would spiral into basically just a complete collapse of credit markets. Now, I think the reason why it didn't happen, as some of the fear mongers predicted, is simply the fact that ETFs, and people miss this sometimes, have both a primary and a secondary market. So the secondary market is where you and I buy them. If I buy an ETF, I buy the shares of that ETF. And the primary market, where market makers like you know, Spare and others, they create and redeem shares all the time to make sure that they track. Now, in March 2020, you just couldn't buy and sell. You can sell a lot of the underlying bonds in the ETF. So people just traded the shares of the ETF. And the shares were obviously hit by a lot of selling, so they fell a lot. So there was this gap that opened up between the price of the ETF and the theoretical price of the bonds that it contained. And people thought this was an example of why things were breaking. I think it's actually a sign of them being a pressure release and actually being a fairer or vehicle than a bond mutual fund. Because bond mutual funds have this run dynamic. Like if you're invested in a dodgy credit fund, like a, a junk bond fund, you want to pull your money out before the next person because typically that fund will sell not what it wants, but what it can in a crisis. So the last people to go out of the fund are le typically left with the crappiest, lowest rated credits. So the remaining creditors bear the risk and all the costs of the early exiters. So that, that creates a bank run dynamic. But with ETFs, if you want to sell the shares, yes, you do that. But you have to accept a, a discount. So the sellers, the people that want liquidity, they're the ones that have to pay the price for it. Well, the remainders in that ETF don't have to. So broadly speaking, I actually think credit ETFs, I'm sure this will come back to haunt me at some point, but <laughs> they did well. You know, I have to say that when you talk about it that way, there's also one other aspect of it that makes me feel like the bond ETFs would be a very somewhat padded in, the, in a crisis, which is the Federal Reserve can step in and yeah. they're going to provide liquidity. Whereas, I mean, not yet. I mean, I'm sure that they could have that as their break the glass scenario, but they haven't figured out a way to get step into the uh, actual equity market in any major way. So I think that maybe that's another part of this, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, I mean, the Bank of Japan and the Swiss National Bank have already figured out how to buy equities. I'm sure the Fed could if it, if it wanted to. And this is one thing a lot of people hold up, that like ETFs were only saved by the fact that the Federal Reserve not only bought corporate bonds for the first time, but corporate bond ETFs. And also conveniently, largely quite a lot of them BlackRock ETFs, and BlackRock is the biggest ETF provider in the world. Now, I definitely agree that if the Fed hadn't acted so dramatically in late March, 
basically it started doing unlimited QE, quantitative easing, then I'm sure we would have had some severe issues with credit ETFs. The stress was just monumental. But I am also convinced that we were far closer to the mass closure and freezing of redemptions of bond mutual funds before we had problems with credit ETFs. We already had closures of lots of corporate bond funds in markets like India and Sweden and other parts of Scandinavia. And in Europe, there was talk of lots of stress. In the US, there were a lot of funds that were running perilously low on liquidity and would at some point probably have to, for the sake of its remaining investors, freeze redemptions in 40 Act funds. And I think that would have been a far more dangerous systemic event and happens sooner than any major event with credit ETFs. Before you go, what scares you now about risk in the marketplace? I think interest rates are going to stay low for a very long time and bond yields are going to stay low for a very long time for all sorts of secular, economic and demographic reasons. But I think low interest rates and low bond yields is the edif- the foundation that all financial market prices are built on. And at the moment, things look very, very stretched. So I don't think it would take a lot of a bond market sell-off to echo quite violently through large swaths of the financial market uh, system. So that that is the, the major risk I think we should probably worry about. Are you worried about inflation? Not enormously. So it's one. It's, I think it's a low probability event that we have uh, sustained higher inflation for these demographic and economic reasons. I, you know, I didn't go mm-hmm. into it, but like I still there. The reason why we've had low inflation for basically two decades, whatever interest rates and financial markets and the economy has done. But so I think it's a low probability, but high impact event. So mm. let's say, I think it's probably less than like, it's 20% chance that inflation stays extremely high and accelerates from here. And that we have like a proper inflationary bout, but the damage that would cause would be astonishing. So that's why it is definitely something that I think, yeah, low probability, high impact, fear of mine. Well, thanks so much to Robin Wigglesworth. We had such a lovely little email exchange after where I sent him a picture, Mark, of my badge, my commodities trading badge, and my father's badge from the American Stock Exchange. So that was kind of a fun thing. And he's a delight. And the book is quite interesting. So Mark will have a link to it in the show notes to trillions, not billions. Mark, do you watch billions? I never watched it. Should I watch it? Okay. Mark says no. We'll hear what someone else says. Okay. If you have a financial question, just hop onto the website, jillonmoney.com, click the contact button, subscribe to this podcast, subscribe to our sister broadcast. It's called Eye on Money, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, very good. All right, put your hands on someone's back. And if they're not vaccinated, you can do it metaphorically. Okay, grit, growth, grace, just a little bit of gratitude. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.